it's getting much worse and it's getting much worse very quickly. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to The Sustainable Hour, episode number 473. We are broadcasting from stolen land. It was land that was never ceded, always was, and always will be Aboriginal land. We pay tribute to First Nations elders, past, present, and those that earn that great honour in the future. We also acknowledge that we have so much to learn from the ancient wisdom that's been acquired from millennia of nurturing their land and their communities. And there is so much for us to learn from that ancient wisdom as we navigate the climate crisis that we face. I, I was thinking about um, the young people actually and attending um, the, the uh, climate strike events with, with my, both my um, teenage children and looking at their faces and the hope in their faces, demanding action on climate change and really feeling that, um, that visceral anger and frustration with, with adults and looking at wanting to trust adults. Um, about this and, and making real change. Real change seems to be coming now to the Geelong City Hall. Elise Wilkinson, who ran on the Put Climate First agenda at the council election back in 2020, just when we were coming out of COVID, and who we interviewed here in the Sustainable Hour together with the other four Put Climate First candidates who were running here in Geelong, Elise is now councillor after Stephanie Asher stepped back and the votes have been counted again. Councillor Belinda Maloney ran on the same Put Climate First ticket and then just recently we've seen Sarah Halfway joining Geelong Council and she has been a long-time climate activist. So that gets me optimistic about seeing some real change and some positive move towards taking action on climate from the Geelong City Hall. Here's what Elise told us back then. What could we imagine things to be better? And what could council be involved in doing? What could we do? Um, and the idea of, um, of being an independent, um, not being connected to any party, makes me be able to really imagine um, more fully a, a time where politicians are divested from fossil fuel from um, from that, you know, that old way of thinking, that old connection into a, a time where actually we we could be um, creating jobs so, such as, you know, tapping into the um, federal fund for recycling or even today the announcement of um, the federal fund for electric cars. Imagine, imagine Geelong being the home of um, creating electric cars or, re, you know, transferring petrol-based cars into electric cars and how many jobs both of those two industries would, would create. You know, these are the possibilities if you start to think about what could be rather than complacently think about status quo. So, yeah, so if I'm elected, 
I suppose it's about holding holding council accountable to making those real changes that are within the strategic plan, actually putting real targets in place and working collaboratively with the, all of the other councillors um, and really looking at the future, looking at what might be rather than what is right now. For Ballerine specifically, I think there's, you know, there's a really strong reason that, you know, we moved down here. So I've been um, living here in, in Barwon Heads for 19 years and have a very strong connection to the ocean and the river and the land. And I think most people do, you know, living. That's why we choose to live down here. But there's incredible pressure on a growing population. And so really looking at development, looking at how can that be? How can we, how can we provide affordable housing for people, but also ensure that we look after the endangered species, you know, look at the, the wetlands, um, really really in all of the decisions, whether it's what the council buildings are, um, what power is used to, to generate um, the electricity in council buildings, to the cars, to the development. Um, really, the idea is to put, by putting climate first in all of those questions, we're actually able to create a, a hopeful future for ourselves, but um, for our children and our children's children. Imagination. That's what we'll be talking about in the Sustainable Hour today. A revolution of the imagination. But first, we must hear what has happened around the world since our mainstream media continues to completely fail us on doing that. So we're lucky to have our Global Outlook Order of Australia Medal awarded journalist Colin Market, who's been monitoring the news as they keep ticking in. And what does it look like? What do you have for us today, Colin? Well, it's not good, Mick. Our roundup this week begins in Reading in the UK, where the European Meteorological Institute, Copernicus, issued a report saying that July of this year was, as by a significant margin, the hottest month ever recorded. July 2023 was on average 1.5 degrees Celsius, warmer than temperatures before the Industrial Revolution. And this has surpassed the 1.5 degree warning limit that was set by the Paris Agreement, to which every nation, all world leaders, committed to preventing. In Germany, thousands of passengers were stranded at Frankfurt Airport when a storm led to significant flooding in the city last Wednesday. While rain and thunderstorms swept through central Germany, the airport was at a standstill and around 100 flights were cancelled or diverted due to water and weather. This happened a month after the climate activists blocked the runways of two other German airports to draw attention to the significant contribution of air traffic to global greenhouse gas emissions. Then to Spain, where the Spanish holiday destination of the Canary Islands, where up to 8,000 people have been evacuated or forced to stay indoors since the night of August the 16th, as flames raved around the island of Tenerife. This is probably the most complex fire we have had in the islands ever, or at least in the last 40 years, said the regional president, Fernando Clavaggio, after a long night of firefighting. Then to India, where at least 72 people have died in the aftermath of landslides and floods that have ravaged India's Himalayan region since August the 13th. 
That was when heavy rain hit the area. The Indian Meteorological Institute reported that parts of the state received around 273 millimeters of rain in 24 hours. Several people are still missing. Although flooding is a recurring event in India, their meteorologists say that climate change contributes to escalating the severity and the frequency. Then to Morocco, where another record temperature was recorded on Friday. It marked the hottest day ever recorded. For the first time, the coastal city of Agadir recorded a temperature above 50 degrees Celsius. The heat waves in Morocco have also led to wildfires in August. Morocco's National Agency for Water and Forestry announced that the country had already experienced 182 forest fires that have consumed 1,200 hectares of land. Now to Scandinavia, where August brought Storm Hans, which ravaged Norway and Sweden, where the two countries experienced some of the worst floods ever recorded. The floods disrupted power supplies in many places. Thousands of citizens had to be evacuated and a bridge collapsed due to the damages. Now, do you want to hear about Slovenia? They've just recorded what has been called the worst natural disaster in Slovenia's history by Prime Minister Robert Golub. They had a whole month's rainfall in less than a day, which caused vast areas to be flooded and damages have been registered from at more than 500 million euros. Now to China, which was hit by the strongest storm in years, causing a landslide that claimed the lives of 21 people in the western city of Xi, according to Associated Press reports. This was in the wake of Typhoon Doksuri, which ravaged China with record rainfall and floods. It's the most powerful storm to hit the Chinese mainland since Typhoon Songmai in 2006. China is accustomed to significant amounts of rain during the summer, but this year's situation has been more intense with major floods in some parts of the country and drought in others. The Chinese government reported that 142 people died due to the floods and landslides in July alone. Typhoon Doksuri also caused destruction and claimed lives in the Philippines. At least nine people lost their lives due to flooding, fallen trees and landslides. The loss of life culminated on Thursday where 26 people died when a powerful storm led to a ferry sinking just 46 metres off the coast of Manila. The Philippines are frequently hit by several typhoons and storms. But it's the same story. They're becoming more destructive and more frequent. Scientists have, of course, linked this trend to climate change. And while a country accounts for less than 0.4% of global greenhouse gas emissions, they're suffering more than most. And finally, in a historic referendum, Ecuadorians voted overwhelmingly on Sunday to halt drilling in the Amazon Yasuni National Park. The historic referendum also calls for Ecuador's government to dismantle fossil fuel infrastructure within a year and begin reforestation 
throughout the country. And that only positive note that I have ends this roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our first guest today is Gilbert Rochecouche from the Village Well. Now, we, we had Gilbert on some time ago, three, three years ago, we think it is. So, Gilbert, welcome to the Sustainable Hour. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Tell Tony. us about what's up front for Village Well at the moment. Fantastic. Well, firstly, thank you, everyone, for having me on this great podcast. 473, world record, I think. Amazing. <laughs> and um, But this is the whole thing, isn't it? It's about long, you know, being there for the long haul. And uh, and here we are once again. I think April 2020 um, was the last time, a month after COVID. So really, I just want to give a little snapshot of what, I suppose, a changed world, really, and what the conditions are going to uh, have now been created. The conditions for, I think, deep cultural and social change, what I call the quickening and the time of the great turning has now happened. I thought this was going to happen in a decade, in 2030. It's actually right now. So that's, I mean, it puts chills up my spine saying that because those five things that happened when I last spoke in 2020 um, were quite uh, uh, quite globally significant. Let's quickly go through those five things. One is COVID gave us a, a bit of a a global life lesson. You know, there was some, there was, it was pretty tough on, on everyone, almost definitely traumatic, but definitely the silver linings of these half a dozen key things. One is that people understood the concept of localism because they were forced to, to go into localism, our local shops, our local streets, our local traders. Secondly, the, the importance of the local person on, on the street around connection to nature and their reimagining of nature <laughs> as a sense of wellness and well-being. So those two things actually connected to people's somatic and physical experience. And I think the third piece is Obviously, the changing nature of work. Every city now has become a Tuesday to Thursday economy. That is a quantum shift globally. And we probably underestimate how big that is. Because if we've got the biggest game in town is consumption, and our cities are the consumptive palaces <laughs> of our of our, of our the global narratives, if you want to call it that. So that is is going to shift the way we start to rethink our connection to livelihood, yeah? So, and then the, the other key one is that, that extraordinary, which is something I'm really interested in, that significant shift around the search for meaning. You know, we had the, 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 the great resignation in the States where 47 million people resigned. They didn't get sacked, they resigned. Don't underestimate that. You know, I think there's 80 million cultural creatives in America. There's about... Um, 5 million in Australia. So these demographics are connected to nature. They love local. They want to do the right thing. They're probably medium green. They're starting to touch into dark green in, around social change. So when we start to look at all these key shifts and changes for village well, it starts to change the game because the village becomes a central piece for that again. But, but three shifts have to change. Our, our focus on what you know, assets are, property and cities. Because of the crisis that's happening, we need to read around social innovation. We need to rethink ownership, um, the concept of ownership of land and property 
And that's a radical shift that needs to happen now. And we need new governance models. So the second piece for us is culture and how we've, we've, we've changed, we're changing the narrative. And I think what's happening here that, and what that narrative is moving is shifting into that third piece, which is governance. We're going to need a, a, a radical global bottom-up revolution, which has already started because communities aren't broken. They're actually in place already. We need to really name that in a sense that there's a DNA in every part of the world where people do care about family, friends, place, and we just need to tap into that global resource and that creative potential to unleash this. Governance is going to be a real key element there, local governance and the importance of um really people power at the end of the day. And we're starting to see this where we're starting to see enlightened developers understand it, giving public spaces back to communities. Not everyone's doing that, but we're starting to see a movement towards that. But we're also starting to see a global movement towards regenerative practice. And this is where Village Well is now repositioning its its business towards a regenerative organisation. So we become regenerative practitioners, not just placemakers, and this is why we created Epoch just recently in the last two years during, and it's an institute, the Epoch Institute in South Melbourne. Um, and really the key pillars there for us under Village Well and, and the institute is to reimagine people, place and planet. We need I, a revolution of imagination. <laughs> well, look, I, I've been through the same COVID experience as you, as you were, but um, I have a different take on it and i like your view on this i believe that we came out of uh, covid a different society a less tolerant society and yes you're right about consumption being the um the drive but uh what i see is uh, we've all gone out and bought dogs during the lockdowns um we are getting more exercise walking around the block with a dog uh, many of us are now working from home. We uh, we have a, a certainly a more aggressive strain. Uh, there are more people bibbing their horns and getting upset with other drivers, and there are councils everywhere that are shutting out the public because of the aggressive mood in the community. The other thing that we've done is come up with a system of um, building Mac mansions and shifting from what were standard houses, and instead we're living in very eco-unfriendly Mac mansions because we've pushed over the old houses. I, I say, this is my opinion, and it doesn't really sit comfortably with what you've been saying. Good so, point. Um, please give us... No, absolutely. I mean, Put me down if you like, but that's, yeah, that's well, my opinion. That's, it's an interesting thing. I've been sitting with this for 30 years, um, Colin, in my work. And what I find when I do, we've worked with nearly 3,000 cities and towns around the world. And what we do find is that there's, there's, there is a silent majority. When people are brought in, yeah, to actually have a voice, there is an un, what I call an unleashing of creative potential. So really, from our point of view, there's three-thirds in the community. The first third want to make a change. This is the social change theory from our point of view and our experience. I'm just talking from an evidence basis. When you get that first third, they want to get the second third a little bit like on the, they're, they're on the fence, right? But you can bring them in. The last third are the tough group. And you're talking about that last third. They're not the majority from my point of view, Colin, from my experience. 
they're the ones who are the loudest voices. <laughs> they, um, some of them have got lots of money. They, they have a lot of um, self-interest um, at stake. And they really push hard. So I'm think I'm just starting to see an emergent new story here where I think, yes, we will, we are still building McMansions, but people are starting to have a, a quantum shift around because of COVID, Colin. What life do I want to live? You know, the sea changes and tree changes, but also people in the city want amenity. They want walkable communities. You know, we need to stop building, you know, tracts of land out there, but bring them back into the city centres of Geelong or Melbourne and thousands of other cities. And young people are going to be the key drivers of this because they're locked out of the system. And our research is finding very quickly that these Gen Zs and millennials, it's not us, we're about to die in the next 20 years, and we're the negative ones. We're the ones saying no, but this, this cohort of young people get it from our research and basically saying three things. We want the truth, the quality of life. We want purposeful work and meaning. They'll walk away. And creative capital is the key element for organisations now. Um, Young people will not work for an organisation for more than five years. We used to work for 20 years, remember, and 30 years. It's a new game. It's a new game. And then now the third piece, they're revolutionising conscious consumption. They're looking for ways to so they find some sort of meaning and some sort of connection of lowering their, their ecological footprint. But also there's a meaning piece. It's not about religion. It's a global spirituality, I think, that's emerging. I think it's exciting to hear the expression, a revolution of the imagination. We've talked in, in the Sustainable Hour, last week we had a, a, an entire hour talking about the climate revolution and what that could look like. Tell me about the revolution of the imagination. What does that look like? Well, I think that's actually the biggest revolution <laughs> because, you know, what, we, what we're in now is a battle of stories, yeah? And if we can't imagine the new story, and, and can I just say the key organising principle here for the new story it's a story that nourishes life. Yeah, I'll say that again. That is the work of, of this century, the story that will nourish life because everything else extracts <laughs> and we know that, everything we do. So we need new social innovations, new ways of governance, new ways of thinking, new ways of designing cities, new ways of agriculture. And I think the regenerative piece is really important because I think you know, as we we you know we were preparing for floods and fires and and more extremes, and we're working with a, an organisation called, called Resilient Co. Um, at the Epoch Institute, that's working with probably up to two to three hundred communities in the next few years, preparing them. But the missing piece there is sure we need to prepare, but what about the imagination? How are we to work? How are we to create new ways of collaboration? What about the gifting economy? Yeah, that um, that wants to be born, and all of these things around new governance frameworks of co-ops and working four days a week, and all of these things are about reimagining ways of being. But we don't have time to reinvent our institutions. That's the elephant in the room. I want to say, folks, we've only got years, not decades. So we've got to go inside our, as Joanna Macy, one of my teachers, a deep ecologist says, we've got to go into the, those institutions and reimagine them. And it's going to take thousands, if not millions of people 
within these institutions. Remember, there's three areas of work. The holding, let's hold on to the life support systems so we don't lose what, you know, our topsoil, air quality, water. Second one is working in the systems, really critical, and they're all equally important. And the third one is the shifting consciousness, reimagining the story. If we can't get that right, then we're, we're gone. So we're, we're we're in we're in we're in we're in the major crossroads. We're probably at the global tipping point for the last four to five hundred years of two two roadmaps. Um, one is mutually assured destruction, <laughs> and one will move towards creating a more thrivable. And it's going to be clunky. It's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. We're going to cry with, with each other, but we've got to hold each other together because we. it's going to be about the key word for me is community, reimagining what it is to be community. Become clearer. The end of my life is always getting nearer. Focusing on the things that bring meaning food, community, love, and healing. I'm getting tired of all this moving around. Wanna bring it back home to a simple piece of ground. Been talking about it till my mouth is dumb. But all I wanna do is make a deeper connection with some earth people fit. Gilbert, I'm very much aware that we need a revolution, and I'm also aware that revolutions in the past have been sparked by events. They've been sparked by uh, social uprising, like the French Revolution, probably the, the biggest revolution we've seen in a couple of hundred years. Others have been sparked by religious things, but never have we been in need of a revolution as we are at the moment, because the planet is at stake. We need to switch our fossil fuel burning completely, stop it completely, and change it for um, renewable energy. We know that this can be done because we are doing it in small parts. But opposed to that change, it's not a revolution yet, opposed to that is, is people who are vastly rich and they are bribing our governments to stop the movement. Now, that has never happened in any of the revolutions before. When we had the Protestant Revolution, if you like, the Catholic Church didn't have the nous to, um, uh, to 
do what the fossil fuel industry is doing today and oppose it. And uh, at the French Revolution, the other one that I was talking about, the uh, royalty of France certainly didn't have the now power to do what the fossil fuel industry, which is rich or highly um, paid up. Well, they're charging us. They are charging us to not change. You know, every time you go and fill up your car with, with fuel, you're putting more money in the fossil fuel industry's pockets, and they're using that to bribe your politicians and stop them from you doing the right thing. And that's happening around the globe. Oh, so you can call for a revolution, but it's not going to happen in its current circumstances. Well, and not only that, Colin, they are laughing all the way to the bank, aren't they? Yeah, well, they're getting more money all the time. They don't yeah. care about money. Look, I, look, I tend to agree with all the above. I mean, I was, pro you know, I was probably the most green activist in the 90s, you know, locking up on this and that and everything else. I had to start rethinking, you know, my own internal strategies. My my feel of it, Colin, is that we may get a tipping point. And my sense, it ought to be in the next few years, an economic or an ecological tipping point, which will hopefully it'll, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be damaging, but not to the point where it's, it's you know, there's, we can't go back. It'll be led by the next generation. It'll be led by the young people now. That's right. That's I'd right. hate to be a young person now who has left university with a huge debt, can only work in short periods in the gig economy and has no chance at all of buying a house because all of the houses are owned by baby boomers and they're not allowing the prices to drop. Well, I think there's three things that, that could shift this revolution. I think it's an ecological or, or economic tipping point that will put us on the street. The next, I think we're ripe for change. It's the first time in, in human history that three major institutions that give us, give us the, the, the roadmap of how we are in the world have, have lost their legitimacy. And that's the church, government, and business. It's never happened before at the same time. That's a that that makes it ripe for revolution. And I think when you, we saw what happened in 1989, when Russia dis, dismantled, we have an example of that. But I think we know how to go on the streets, but we have we're not brave enough yet because we're not we're not in pain, Colin. We haven't felt the pain yet. Um, those who have been doing the inner work, and I'm going to throw that in. Part of what's been interesting, we've just set up the um, with the Donker Wheel Foundation, the, the the representative in Australia for the inner development goals. Yeah, the UN inner development goals. The top scientists who've been screaming like yourself, Colin, and others are saying we can't do this unless we have a revolution of consciousness of values. And that's why the, the UN Inner Development Goals have been created, you know, of because we've lost our sense. That's why I think that inner revolution is going to be just, we need, so I suppose from my point of view, we're putting a bit of work into that space. We're working in the area of systems, shifting governments, governance and organisations. It's going to take all of us. And then it's going to be a bunch of us going on the streets and locking, doing a lockdown. You know, there could be a million young people in the next couple of years saying, that's it. If they lock down the cities, the governments will change. So we're in. We're coming to what I call multiple cluster. You know what of of a major change, and I've probably been waiting for this for a long time. When you say that we things will change after we've felt the pain, when the pain has come, 
I'm pretty sure that the people on Hawaiian islands that have been completely devastated by fire are feeling the pain. I'm pretty sure that the people of Lismore in New South Wales who've had fires and then floods felt the pain then, but they haven't voted in Greens. They've put in the standard um, do-nothing politicians who are um, whose parties are being financed by the fossil fuel industry and nothing changes because the fossil fuel industry and its vast money is so insidious it actually brainwashes us without us knowing it. Totally. But remember, Colin, in our social change arc, only takes 2 to 3% of the population, yeah, to radically shift. The, I'm talking about an influential group of people, and then the world changes. We get, we get the domino effect. We're not far from that. You know, there's too many, too many tipping points now aligned, and a lot of them will create a lot of pain. But also we have, I feel, and I'm, you know, I'm a, I used to be quite depressed by all this, but I'm I'd still, you know, grieve as a deep ecologist in the background, but it brings up the fire of we need to create the structures now underneath, ready for that, yeah, for that ultimate emergence. We need to be birth mothers and birth fathers of this new story now and prepare these governance structures and key people in key places. That's why we're putting in, the, you know, have created the Epoch Institute and connected to 20 other institutes around the world, really starting to mobilise, share information, haven't, you know, do not, and we have a copy left strategy, not a copyright strategy at Village Wealth, share everything, give away everything. So, Shabat, how can people join that revolution you're talking about? Can we become members of the Epoch Institute? What what can we do We're listening to you? Is there a website we can go to? Yeah. Uh, epochinstitute.com.au I think importantly and you know we're connected to many other global networks but importantly it's for us it's the other thing is starting in your own backyard you know we're doing some of that global connection and getting that 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 network that we need to build globally so we can all hold it but I think we need to start locally I think you know if people can think about their own in um you know I'm a big still a big fan of local government as much as it's they've got their you know issues around you know money and you know politics of everything you know can be quite negative but I think they're they're the key body that's going to unlock the local revolution and help create the conditions we need cultures of yes in these local government areas and that can create the conditions for social innovation to happen very quickly because, you know, public space is going to be important, food security is going to be important, energy security. We're starting to see some innovative local councils from Yarra and Newcastle and lots of others really creating the conditions for their innovative citizens. Again, we need to move from consumers to citizens. That's going to be a huge leap in the next few years. Remember, I used to be the general manager of Chats and Shopping Centre, the biggest consumption palace in the Southern Hemisphere. So I come from that world, you know, the dark side. <laughs> But we're working with shopping centres to become mixed use, to become zero carbon. I mean, it's crazy. But sometimes, you know, I, I have a statement that I wrote 20 years ago. We have good people in a badly designed system. There's good people in a badly designed system. As soon as we 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 shame people, they lock down, and then they go. Shaming is a good place. We need to shame some politicians, and but we, but the, the, the Joe Blow locks away. We when we used to slam them with the stats, 
When I was a climate leader with, with Al Gore, when we went around 50 communities 15 years ago, people shut down. It was too, it was too much information. So we had to shift it around, okay, what would you do locally? What were the three things? What are the small things that you can do? Look, there's a lot of guilt marketing happening with the baby boomers. They know things are not good and their kids are not going to have a great future. It's going to be a you know, quite a, you know, a very dangerous place to live in the future. They know that down deep. So we need to tap in. Yeah, Bear, I'm just, I'm just wondering if the uh, institutes that you're talking about, the network of, of groups that you're involved in, are they are they all in the West? Are there any? Are we looking at the so-called developing countries? Do they have a position in there at all? Uh, look, we're only a year old, so we're just emergent. With the our, our second year is going to be, you know, more in that you know, developing countries. You know, I, I do a bit of work in Africa, being Mauritian, and yes. um, and helping my Mauritian communities with you know making sure we've got a. a, a, a you know, Mauritius might not be around in 50 years. That's the issue we've got in Mauritius. It's, it's you know, we'll be underwater. So for me, that's that's just tra traumatising to even think about that. My whole culture's gone. So we need to work with the really, the, the, you know, the developing economies because that's where the, the, the bigger change is going to be. That's a much bigger conversation. To be honest, it's not my, my skill set as a placemaker. But ultimately, we need to help our brothers and sisters in these spaces around good knowledge, good processes, share the technologies and, uh, and make it accessible and free, you know, <laughs> and fast. Don't say we didn't know. When the floods came, when the fires burned, when the air filled with smoke, don't say we didn't know. When the prices rose and their profits grew and they lied and lied and lied. Just ask, what did we do? How did we rise? What did we win? What did we gain? Don't say we didn't know. Ask us what we did next. Globally and in Australia now too, we see displacement because of climate change. We're looking at, you know, the top end of Australia being unlivable. Where do these people go? So in a world where weather records tumble... The era of global boiling has arrived. And climate change ramps up, is Australia ready to keep its cool? If we're not prepared, we're not going to cope and our health system will crumble and that's going to have big impacts on the health of the people of our country. Our next guest is Louise Shepherd. For many years, Louise has been a clinical psychologist. More recently, she's been the project lead for one of the Teal candidates or the successful candidates, uh, Kylie Tink. And a particular program that she's leading up is called Powering to Net Zero or the Powering to Net Zero team. So welcome, Louise, to the show. Thanks so much, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It's just been wonderful listening to uh, Gilbert talking about some of the work that they're doing uh, which with Village Well, and I'm part of the great resignation, I guess you could say. So it's um, I'm certainly one of those people who has made a big change during the last few years 
And, uh, and I also can really relate to the people power, having seen that grassroots movement with the, with the last federal election, which was pretty exciting to be part of. Um, so yeah, look, a, a bit of a change of pace, although lots of themes that have come out in the conversation so far, I can really relate to. And one of the reasons, I guess, that I'm, um, doing what I'm doing is because I can see that in the climate movement, in the world as at large, there's so much shaming and blaming that goes on. And so one of the things I, I felt with 30 years in the psychology game that maybe I could actually contribute in that space by helping people to have conversations, to listen to each other better. But really, I think first and foremost, I'm a mum, I'm a stepmom. And uh, I got to a point where my day job, which has been um, as a therapist for the last 25 years, I just didn't feel like I was able to do the work that felt mo most important to me at this time. And I know we don't choose to be born when we're born, but certainly it's a decade of change that we all know that we need to, to sort of get on with. I went to a conference, ironically, and, and with a little bit of embarrassment, it was on the other side of the world uh, back in 2019, and I went to a, a workshop on climate change. And I, at that stage, I was already starting to get more engaged and thinking more about it, but very late to the environmental space. What happened in that workshop is I basically spent two hours sobbing and had a real sort of awakening. Um, some of the my colleagues were using some of Joanna Macy's uh, Active Hope, some of the exercises actually from that wonderful book, and it was just so heart-wrenching. And I knew when I got back on the plane to come back home that my life was going to change. And I'm very grateful for that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, take that back, but it's also obviously it, it did lead to quite a painful time over the coming weeks when I read more and understood more about the state of the planet and what my privilege had allowed me to ignore for so long. And then over the next few years, I got involved with Australian Parents for Climate Action, who I think are just a really wonderful group for parents and carers. And then during the lead up to the federal election, um, did quite a lot on Kylie Tink's campaign and just really just loved seeing these strong, independent women coming through representing what people were wanting that we, we you know we were tired of politics as it has been and that um you know climate change should never have been a, a political issue mm -hmm. and so to be part of that and now to be leading a wonderful team of volunteers um is just a it's a great privilege and and something that I'm really really enjoying so now I sleep better at night I my my life is a little bit chaotic I'm trying to work for Kylie also do other things for myself as I transition into this new career. I decided I wanted to be um, an influencer, which makes me laugh, but I figure there are so many influencers out there selling cosmetics and fashion and things that we know are polluting and destroying our planet that I figured that if I could use my psychology skills in some sort of positive way to influence, then that might be worth doing. So that's sort of where I'm at at this point. If you were to look in the crystal ball, Lou, What's happening with the teal movement? What will we see happening at the next federal election? This is what we're so excited about here in the in the Sustainable Hour team because we do see a possibility of something we would call the teal revolution. Well, look, I, I hope. I mean, the, the whole the teal thing is kind of interesting, isn't it? Right? They're all community independence, and someone came up with this term, and it's kind of stuck. But they, I think what, I think what's happened is we've got this grassroots movement. We've got people coming together in their communities, 
basically saying, you know what, we don't like the way our democracy is being managed. We want to be able to have a voice. We want our representative to be able to go to Canberra and actually represent us. And I think nowhere has that been clearer than integrity and climate and biodiversity. So I think what I would hope to see and what I believe will happen is that we are going to see more seats that will turn independent at the coming election. I think, um, you know, seeing the independence and some of the green seats come through, to see that crossbench, I don't go to Canberra a lot, but I was there a couple of weeks ago and just to watch, like, see those people who are sitting there with with respect. I mean, question time is just an absolute disgrace to hear the way that people talk to each other and to see this group of individuals coming together. They don't agree with everything that each other says, but what they do do is that they are standing for what uh, I think, you know, 80% perhaps of our community wants, which is stronger action on climate. We want integrity. We want equality. You know, all of these things that I think better represents the, the world that we're living in. Uh, so I really hope that we are going to see a teal revolution at the next election. The teal revolution as it rolled out or began, you could say, in the last election, owed an awful lot to the gender issue didn't it, Lou, in that um, basically it was the Teals that, that threw out the Morrison government and the Morrison government was the one that really um, had no time at all for females. Even the females that were part of their government, they had no time for them. And uh, this occurred at the same time as the Me Too movement and the, the independence that got in cleverly married those two issues together and then pulled them together by, by utilising a colour of all things, by utilising teal. And then now we all recognise it almost as a, a de facto party. It, it is part of the thing, isn't it, that if you're standing for the teal movement, you've got to be a female. And well, funnily enough, like it is sometimes the observation is made, David Pocock is also part of that movement. Yeah. <laughs> but no one calls him Teal. And we, I do wonder if that is because he is a man. Mm. Um, but he is certainly very much part of that same movement. And look, I, I don't think that uh, to be part of the community independence space, I don't think it needs to be uh, female forever. And maybe it doesn't need to be at the next election. And, you know, I personally would love to see more diversity. I think that, you know, I think we would all agree that there's, um, you know, not as much diversity in that group as we'd like to see. Yep. However, I think what it does show is that you don't have to be an older white man to succeed. And, and actually looking at the parliament, this 47th, I think it's the 47th parliament, is such a beautiful, diverse group of people. So it's nice to see that there are actually, we're starting to see a better representation of our community, I think, that's out there. But certainly there are many women and many men that I know who were fed up with the treatment of women leading up to the last election and enough was enough. They really did have to go. Yeah. I am an old white male. I'm an old white stale male and I am completely with you all the way through there. It's, uh, I would like to see, I would, to be honest, I would like to see the head of state of Australia be called auntie and be an indigenous woman and let them, let the voice proponents elect a different one every year. That would, for me, would be the correct way of going and looking into the future. But I mean, 
I, I just like to say that right now because I'm an old, elderly, white male. Good point, Colin. <laughs> I can see you. And Lou, Colin, I think um, the other elephant in the room is 52% of Australians are either born overseas or their parents are born overseas. There's Asian mm -hmm. and Africans and Mauritians. The, but we don't see that people of colour or Asian. Very rarely we see that, that group, 52% of the population in that room, is still quite white. I mean, as a person of colour yeah. um, and, and, and also the other key thing is I think is is that what, what the Teal movement did was that reframe that concept for, for a lot of men, the concept of, hey, we don't have, to, patriarchy doesn't have to be part of politics. We yeah. can, you know, we... we there's, Hallelujah. There's, it's taken a long time and uh, <laughs> that's right. it, it, it really has. But, yes. yeah, it's it's definitely, it's something that is really positive, I think, about the about the last election is just seeing so many just very strong and capable women. And one of the things that really stood out for me is that they come from very diverse backgrounds, but they've achieved things in the world and they're not political by nature. I had a funny experience. I was at a, a meeting with one of our local councils who uh, I know there was a comment earlier. We work really closely with our councils because they are doing so much of the day-to-day -day work that's necessary to decarbonise our community. And uh, and she said, a woman said to me, like, oh, have you been interested in politics for very long? And I laughed and I said, oh, I'm not interested in politics. And the look on her face was one of amusement. And I, I sort of felt like I needed to explain. I said, no, I'm not so interested in politics, but I'm really, really interested about the future of our planet. I want, I want my kids to grow up. On a, on a safe planet and so that's why I've given up my you know former career so that I could come and do something that felt really valuable for the future. Luke could we could we spend just a little bit of time about what you're mulling over as for your future? Oh yes um, I would love to talk about that you know there's a, a phrase that a colleague from the US uh, used in a conference last year or the year before and it was who do you want to become? And I think it's a question that I ask myself and it's a question that I would ask all of us to really think about is who do we want to become because who we've been uh, in the past uh, is no longer serving us as individuals and as a society. We have a lot of change, this sort of inner revolution that we need to, that we really need to engage in. The work that I'm really interested in is very much values uh, aligned. So it's about you know, imagining you get to your 80th birthday and you um, are looking back on your life and feeling like, I can see Colin giggling, uh, and, and feeling like you've had a really good life. And so you want to look back and have what was the sense of meaning? What do I want people to say about me at my 80th birthday? And I think at this point in time, what matters most to me, my, my children are currently 8 and 10 and my stepdaughter's 18, what I want is that as they get a bit older and they come to terms with really the reality of what they're living, I want to be able to look them in the eye and to be able to tell them I did what I could when I could, that I didn't wait for other people, that I knew that I needed to do something to help to secure your future and to prevent as much climate harm in your future that I could. And I think in that, and um, I'm writing a book, it's very early days, but the the 
focus of it is around really imperfect, messy climate action. I see a lot of kind of black and white or right and wrong kind of dichotomies happening, both within the environmental movement and outside. And we see that in our, you know, democracy and social media and so forth. What I would really love is to be able to to write something that really resonates with, you know, we can have a laugh at ourselves, we can joke about the hypocrisy of what we're trying to do, that we might do certain things. Like I was thinking an example might be that people may decide that they're not going to give up flying altogether, but they may choose to consciously fly a lot less. So if at the moment they go overseas once a year for a holiday, maybe that they would be able to consider and be willing to go without and maybe it would be every five years that they might do that. If everyone is making those kind of conscious choices and if everyone is or like eating less meat and dairy, I mean, not everyone, I'm, I'm vegan, that was my choice, but not everyone's going to do that. But if people are willing to take some of the meat and dairy out of their fridge and off their plate, um, and be as vegan as they can be, uh, a saying from a psychologist, Melanie Joy, then I think that we're going to be in a lot better place than we currently are because each of us is contributing to the kind of future that we want to see. Lovely, Lou. Now, can I pull together several threads? I celebrated my 80th birthday this year. Congratulations. Uh, Mick was there um, because it was a double celebration. It, it was a time when I also received the OAM, uh, recognition for what I'd done for history, the arts, tourism, and the planet, I like to think of it. Um, Amazing. Things like this. During the last lockdown, we changed our household completely to be carbon-free. We chucked out all of our gas appliances and we bought an electric car and so now i find myself as an 80 year old without ever trying to become it but i'm now an uh now what's the word again influencer i'm suddenly i'm an influencer and i'm an influencer if you think gilbert if you think that you came from the dark side because of your shopping center background i used to write for the murdoch press all <laughs> that I was a butcher. <laughs> so you've both got reasons to look back at my past and say, how the hell did you wind up where you are now? But I'm very, very happy to be where I am now. But I'm unhappy that the rest of the planet hasn't joined me, hasn't mm. come along with me. So I want to move beyond influencer. I want to be the revolutionary, but I'm too old for it now. <laughs> Never it, too old. I mean, it, look it, at David Attenborough. You know, he's exactly, pushing 100, yeah. is he not? That's right, yep. Yeah. The messy movement that you're talking about, I think the good news is, as you say, it's already happening. And I spoke about last week that there's a Melbourne town hall meeting being organized on the 9th of September, which in a way is being organized in that sort of not so professional way where the, we don't know yet who's, who are the speakers at this meeting. It's basically a, a group of climate activists who are gathering under the headline, stepping up together. And even though it's unclear what's going to be happening at the meeting, it's very exciting in a way because it's linked to what both of you have been telling us today and the other podcasts that we're doing. It's sort of all leading towards that we can get together at the Melbourne Town Hall, which is a big place. There's plenty of room there and talk about these issues and see where that will lead us to. So that is the community coming together in that disorganized way that you're talking about. 
Absolutely, uh, Mick. And I think it's it's happening. It, the, the trains left the station. We're not going back, that's for sure. And um, there's some good people. Good people want to do good things, in, like Lou said. And um, we're in a, an extraordinary time. It's both scary to be alive, but I, I can feel the, the the voice and feeling of, you know, being a – I was a grandfather three months ago, and, you know, I can feel the voice of future generations right at me, and, you know, and I wake up in the middle of the night and I have a chat with them. So now's the time. And I just want to throw in, you know, let's not forget our Indigenous brothers and sisters. They have so much to give Absolutely. Um, as a narrative. The oldest continuous wisdom on the planet, the most sacred place on, you know, they understood deep, deep sacred life and sustain, you know, sustainability and regenerative systems. They're the ultimate. So just wanted to throw that narrative story because I think the story, the new story for Australia, which a Noongar elder told me years ago, is that his dream was that the oldest continuous wisdom on the planet met up with the youngest multicultural community on the planet. We're only a couple hundred years old. And yeah. together we're going to create this emergent new story that will nourish life. And I thought that was so beautiful. Would that be your dream for the future, Shibut? Yeah, look, I think what I just said about the Indigenous elder is my dream, my my bigger dream. And then my smaller dream in the next few years is to really help mobilise, mentor, guide the next generation very quickly and mobilise these new technologies and systems and share it widely so we can move quickly to really inspire hope that we all become hope merchants not despair merchants and that we can create that field of possibility for you know active hope and action so i mean it's been my work for 30 odd years so it's like a, a continue but i've got this you know i just turned 60 so i've got more fire in the belly i think Um, even what I heard from Colin, I've got years to go. So, <laughs> And Lou, what's your dream for the future? Well, apart from wanting to steal that, because that sounds very eloquent, I think my dream for the future is a, a place where we are connected, that we are community, that we um, have been able to see that the future can actually be pretty bright and that it doesn't have to be about scarcity and loss. Uh, I know we fear we fear change, but there's also so much to be gained in terms of our health, in terms of the planet, in terms of better connection with each other. So I think it would be a future in which we feel better connected to each other as humans and that we're taking better care of this other species that we share the planet with. One moment, this is a thriving beach bar full of young holidaymakers. The next, it's a pile of rubble. The consequences are clear and they are tragic. Children swept away by monsoon rains, families running from the flames, workers collapsing in scorching heat. For the entire planet, it is a disaster. At the heart of this conflict is a battle between truth and science and power and lies. Thank you for a wonderful hour. I really found this inspirational. And step up together with all the people who are going to the Melbourne Town Hall on the 9th of September. Be the difference. Be the difference. Be the difference. Be the difference. <laughs> Be the difference. Be the difference. Be the difference.
People say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to.